0: The Graphic Possibilities Podcast is the official podcast of the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop at Michigan State University. This is a graduate research workshop in the Department of English that engages with comics through two interrelated branches, critical inquiry and engaged pedagogy, led by Professor Julian Chambliss and graduate coordinators Justin Weigard and Nicole Huff. This season, we will be speaking with comics educators, makers, and scholars from around Michigan State University in a monthly podcast series. Given our distance this fall, we wanted to bring the conversation right to you, bridging the gap in space through the digital medium. Deborah Elizabeth Whaley is an artist, curator, writer, poet, and professor at the University of Iowa. From 2017 to 2020, she served as Senior Scholar for Digital Arts and Humanities, where she was an ambassador and liaison for the digital humanities, as well as director of the Public Digital Humanities Graduate Certificate. Currently, she is an administrative fellow in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences Office of the Dean. Her recent and critically acclaimed book is Black Women in Sequence Reinking Comics, Graphic Novels, and Anime, published in 2015. It explores graphic novel production and comic book fandom, looking in particular at African, African African-American, and multi-ethnic women as deployed in television, film, animation, gaming, and print representations of comic book and graphic novel characters. Today, we're speaking with Deborah Elizabeth Whaley. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are incredibly excited to speak with you, but for those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with your work in comics and scholarship and teaching, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in comics?
1: Absolutely, I am now at the University of Iowa and I have a, an appointment in American studies and African American studies, and I'm actually going to be moving to the English department. So next year, that's going to be really uh, exciting. But I am an interdisciplinary uh, scholar uh, trained in the field of American studies. All my degrees are in American studies. I'm also an artist as well. I I do mixed media art, Uh, mainly I paint, but I also have some training in cartooning and illustration and that's where I started in art. And in fact, the only training I have had in art is in cartooning. I just happened to kind of branch off um, from there. So it's really interesting that I have found myself, at least in terms of my scholarship, back to comics, the field of comics, Uh, since that's where I started, uh, at least in so far as my art is concerned. And so I I teach a variety of courses on popular culture and film and history. And I'm also really lucky to have the opportunity to teach a course on the black image in comics, graphic novels and anime. And in in terms of scholarship, my entry into comics and uh, maybe I should say sequential art more broadly, uh, is fairly recent. I mean, I've always been working, you know, film and television, which is a form of sequential art, but as far as comics uh, is concerned and, and comic-type adaption, that really happened about, I would say, 15 years ago, um, or maybe a little bit more than that, around 2004. And, I, you know, I started out writing an article about the... Um, graphic novel Catwoman and also the film and and television iteration of Batman that had uh for a brief while Eartha Kitt as Catwoman and so that's where it started and then I ended up um, you know because out of that project I found there wasn't a lot of work on um the representation of black women specifically in comics and so I decided to write a book about it but before the book came out I I wrote a piece on um what I hope to have been one of the earliest people to theorize afro anime And so I wrote a piece on uh, the Boondocks, the um, Adult Swim television show, and that came out, um, or that came about actually by accident too, out of my teaching. So I had a student come up to me uh, in a black film class I was teaching at the University of Arizona, And he had asked me, have you seen the Boondocks yet? And I was already familiar with the comic strip, which I had written a little bit about in a larger piece. Um, And I was like, no, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really excited. And he's like, I just don't know how to make sense of it. It's just so complicated. So I was like, yeah, well, it's on my radar to watch. And so that piece just came out um, or came about because I was just trying to make sense of what he was doing with caricature. And I, I, you know, so I started integrating it into my teaching and my class. And that helped me kind of form some ideas to write an article. And so, so that's how it all gets got started, at least um, insofar as my entry into to comics uh, is concerned. And uh, it's, it's been a great ride. And I'm uh, still doing some work on comics, but I'm also, as always, doing
0: projects on a, a lot of different uh, other topics as well. Thank you. And your, your latest book, uh, Black Women in Sequence Ranking, Comics, Graphic Novels and Anime, uh, that you alluded to, uh, takes this incredible wide ranging like investigation, almost like a recovery of, or articulation of black women in comics. And that book moves through manga and comics and also television and music and video games. And you have a whole section on, on Jackie Arms as well. Could you tell us a little bit about it? And also, this is a a very pointed fanboy question. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit more about the manga chapter, since you alluded to the Afro anime stuff that you've done earlier. Because it it deals with uh, Nadia, right?
1: Yeah, Nadia. uh, The character Nadia from Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water. Sure. So just a kind of a brief survey of the book. I uh, start out talking about one of the Earliest uh, black female superheroes, an independent title. Her name is the Butterfly, uh, and she appeared in Hellrider and then had her own very brief um, graphic novel uh, edition as well, very short lived. And I, I started the discussion there because this character was so wonderful insofar so far as we had this black woman, you know, fighting crime and and all of that. But it was in a very adult themed uh, comic and. Um, it sort of allowed me to talk about some patterns that happened early on when the black image entered into the comics world right and so this was the early 1970s and so the the comic was really entrenched in 1970s black popular culture uh, and lots of you know black exploitation or what i call black exploit comics <laughs> types <laughs> of uh, themes and you know really cheesy dialogue uh and um but uh so i just begin there and then i uh i talk a little bit about um title uh martha washington uh that was uh, published by um dark Horse comics and then the chapters you know i have five chapters i start out with the first uh, black female cartoonist to gain recognition who did work in black newspapers, Jackie Orms. Then I move into a chapter about, as I was mentioning before, the representation of cat women over time in various forms of sequential art media. And then I have a chapter on um, black female superheroes and looking at the ways in which black women um, uh, the, the creators, the, the artists and authors use the Black female image as signs of Africa. And then what I'll put a finer point on in a minute is the fourth chapter, which is on um, uh, anime. And then the last chapter is really an oral history with authors and artists working in the field uh, today. And I try to theorize uh, four or five unique frames to think about sequential art. so. Backing up to the the fourth chapter on anime, which is, is one of my favorites, and it was one of the most difficult to write for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, I start out just framing the field of uh, anime and just talking about the ways in which Japanese popular culture uh, has circulated in the U.S. And then I kind of move into talking about this specific char- character named Nadia, who's known as um, you know one of the first uh, marked. Black or African characters uh, in anime, and there's been a lot of discussion: Is Nadia black or not? Um, you know, her or, her origin place is both uh, Africa and then an imagined world as well. So there's there's lots of um, dispute about that. But she is this dark skinned character who um, talks about being from Africa and her origin place being from Africa, and so. What I like about that chapter is it allowed me to talk about a lot of different things the adolescent image uh, in sequential art, the ways in which young uh, girl bodies are hypersexualized uh, in this form. Uh, but it also allowed me to talk about, in this particular show, uh, some of the uh, great arguments that this show lays bare. And again, this was targeted at a young audience, but there's a lot of incredible themes about colonialism, about slavery, um, about travel, and the importance of having a a sense of home, about how you remake and recreate um, family, and uh, so it allowed me to talk about a lot of different things, and this thing got somewhat thorny because, again, because the young girl body is so hypersexualized in a a wide range of anime, and and Nadia is no different. it allowed me to get into this thorny area of consumerism and readership. And so who's who's watching this and who's reading, um, if we want to talk about the print versions, who's reading manga and some of the uh, lawsuits that have come about and legal cases around um, people having collections and, and mailing this type of media that's not just hypersexual, because I don't think there's anything wrong with sexual images in any form of media. I mean, that's fine, but really venturing into child pornography.
0: So, I mean, that's
1: the thorny part. I knew that had to be a part of the chapter because it's something that um, you know, is, is, a, is a part of the, the, the conversation. And so it was really tricky to navigate that And I guess I'll just wrap it up to say um, one of the exciting things that I like about the chapter is to talk about, um, is when I talk about cosplay and women who dress up as Nadia. And the great thing about this character is women of color and black women have been able to see themselves in the anime world by cosplaying through Nadia. But also because um, she's she's marked as someone from Africa but just um, uh, there's other women of color who also, you know, although not of African descent, because this character is brown, has um, found that they can connect to it. And so they're cosplaying as Nadia. And uh, and so I talk a bit about cosplay and how
2: women uh, connect to this character as well. Awesome, thank you. That was a really good answer to that question. Because <laughs> um, both of us were very interested in that chapter as well. Um, I'm also wondering, since your book does move across media and includes even video games, um, could you talk a little bit about your interdisciplinary approach?
1: Absolutely. So part of the interdisciplinary approach is the various methods that I use, but also, as I think you're alluding to, the range of sequential art, and so, you know, why do I do this? I could have just written a book about comic books and done like perhaps like textual analysis and maybe a little bit of historical contextualization. But the reason why I decided to travel across so many forms of media and use uh, an intermethodological approach and a very theoretical approach is because there was no monograph on this topic. And so I felt that I really had to be um, comprehensive. And what's exciting for me is I I, I feel like I did this comprehensive work that looks at television and film, as you said, gaming, uh, comic strips, print comics, superhero comics, anime, manga, Uh, it covers a wide terrain. And I'm excited for all the scholars who are gonna come behind me and do a closer examination of a particular form, a particular title, and just continue this work on Black women. I, I think that the the book has done pretty well. So we, um, and by we, I mean my press and I, you know, we would not be surprised if there was a second edition just based on the sales and, and how things are going with it now. And I feel like I'm moving um, largely away from um, comics uh, in terms of like publication, even though I have a few things coming down the pipeline. And so if the second edition happens, I'll look more closely at some more current representations in television, in particular, and that's a piece I'm working on right now. I mean, I'm looking at Batwoman. I am I'm looking at some of these CW shows that has black women in them. And so, and so far as video games are concerned, I don't talk a lot about video games. I talk about um, the uh, a couple video games that uh, has Catwoman as a as a feature character, and and I do that to just think about video games. As a form, and how women are um, both, you know, marginalized in this form, but also how they've been able to, in terms of the characterization, uh, display senses of agency. So I look at *Arkham City*, that um, you know features at least the white in quotation marks, uh, *Catwoman*, and, and and I talk about um, the language that's used to describe her, and you know, when I was saying before how I talk about like the video game as a form. One of the things I'm trying to work through is when you have a uh, constant derogatory language used towards a particular character, especially a female character, um, what does it mean when you're interacting with this um, media and you get to be the person in the place of saying these things or making characters uh, say these things, and you're doing it over and over again, and then it gets to the point where it just becomes like ambient noise, and then so what does that mean, so then how does that become normalized, and then I have some fun talking a little bit about the um, video game Catwoman that came out right after the film with Halle Berry, and this video game features her likeness and her voice, and it's, it's really great, like it doesn't have that kind of, um, you know, those problems with uh, our Cam uh, City that Continue, you know, continuously calls Catwoman a bitch and how they're going to do this to her and blow her head off and all that type of stuff. The Catwoman video game um, that has Halle Berry's voice and likeness is, um, it's uh, very crude in so far as it's super simplistic. It's not the most, you know, exciting visually, but she's, you know, going through Gotham, you know, fighting crime and, and, and solving, uh, you know, crime narratives, and it's, Um, It's it's a really rare representation of a Black woman in a video game um, doing these things, despite its uh, simplicity. And I'll just uh, end by saying, in the last chapter, I I talk a bit about some uh, Black female comic artists who started doing comic books and then ended up adapting their work
0: to the video game form. Thank you, um, I have 8,000 questions as I always do. Um, that was such a wonderful answer and I really appreciate sort of the wide range you take to sequential art as you, as you mentioned. And earlier you also mentioned that you are teaching a course on, I think you said the, the black image, is that correct? Uh-huh. Um, our podcast is really aimed at comics educators and uh, makers who are looking to bring sequen- sequential art uh, into the classroom. Do you have any insights or advice to educators uh, working with comics, particularly for folks who might be working with comics for the first time? And, you know, kind of the the two part is, do you have any lesson plans or pedagogical things that you do that you found to be particularly helpful when working with sequential art?
1: Great question. So, I actually, I do a workshop on teaching comics in the classroom, and it's aimed widely at all educators in all disciplines. Um, And so, you know, not just those who are interested in talking about issues of race, so it's really just a workshop on how do you integrate um, comics effectively in the classroom and so I'll give a a couple highlights um, from that, I find that using comics in the classroom can be a great way to engage students visually. Um, and to engage students in thinking about the visual and the narrative simultaneously. But there's so many wonderful wide ranges of comics that can come into the classroom uh, to help us think about history or to you know, represent a particular historical moment or a social movement. And so it can become a really nice companion to a historical text or a book chapter or an article to engage students in interdisciplinary and critical thinking. And so for me in the classroom, even before I started writing about comics, it was always a part of my pedagogy in probably every course that I teach. So if it's uh, you know introduction to African-American culture and history, or if it's introduction to American studies or gender studies class, I mean, it just doesn't matter every single course. Uh, even I teach um, rhetoric, I taught rhetoric in writing as well and I had students do a project on editorial cartoons uh, where they looked at the rhetoric um, that uh, the the comic strip uh, creator was um, presenting and how the creator was mapping various types of political uh, discourse. And so that's one assignment that I've done in rhetoric that I think uh, was really useful for students to think about the, the range of rhetoric and and how you can see logic working, you know and pathos and and all of those um, forms of uh, rhetoric uh, in that form. And so I've also used um, suffragette uh, uh, cartoons and and gags in early newspapers when I'm doing um, uh, when I'm doing units on gender studies and and women and um, women accessing the franchise and the vote. And I do that so people can see, you know, so these um, early uh, cartoons that showed up in newspapers, um, most of the time they were aimed at discouraging women from gaining the vote. And so I think, you know, it's useful for students just to see that visually, how there was this mass circulation of um, anti, um, anti-women voting um, media. And, you know, just to sort of think about Uh, what that means. And in terms of assignments, so yes, you mentioned this uh, class that I teach on the black image and comics, graphic novels and anime. What I do in that class and what I've tried to do in a lot of my courses is get away from the sort of standard types of assignments so, yes, I still have students write papers and, you know, we still do um, midterms and, you know, quizzes and things like that, um, you know, sometimes or that's a, that's a part of it. But I'm really into students like creating things and, and, and to see themselves as creators of original knowledge. So some assignments I have them do is I have them do uh, an audience study where they... Um, talk to someone who is a reader, um, a fan of a particular comic art form, and they ask five questions, and they video, um, they videotape this, and I have them create their own websites where they upload their assignments, so they upload this um, interview that they, that they do with, with um, and a, a reader or a viewer, a fan of this form, and then I have them create their own comic, so I have them do a one-page a comic strip, and they get to pick the topic. But I I walk them through how to create a comic in terms of the creation of panels, um, how you frame your narrative, how you move through a progression of ideas, like how you set the scene or the problem, and then how you move through dialogue, and then how you have a transitional panel or speech, and then you wrap it up and you have a conclusion. So they create their own comic. And I provide a template uh, for them. And I also talked to them about how to find royalty-free images, because in this class, I only have one person who has a background in art. (laughs) There's only one art history, um, and she's not an art history major. I think she's a digital um, digital, uh, art major so I don't assume they have any type of artistic background so we talk about where do you find royalty free images to use how do you use them and then how do you create your own comic type images from photographs so I do a workshop on that just like creating a comic and then I have them do like a typical you know uh, a narrative uh, analysis uh, a, a paper that they do and I have them also do a slideshow a visual slideshow of a particular character uh, one time when I taught the class, I had them do exactly what we're doing right now, a podcast, where they talk about a, a problem uh, in the field or they take a deeper dive to discuss a particular character or show. Um, and I have, uh, you know, five uh, five young scholars work together to, uh, to, to create the the podcast and so we talk about how to do a podcast what types of questions do you come up with how do you deal with um timing and and, and aspects of production uh, as well so, so those are some of the assignments um that that i do and i have you know a, a lot of more um, things that i can offer in terms of historiography types of assignments, and textual assignments, and ethnography, and things like that, and if folks are interested, definitely contact me, and I would be happy to do a a workshop
2: uh, on how to teach comics uh, with any, um, you know, with with a group of educators, so. Well, thank you so much. Again, your answers are so thoughtful, and like have such a nice, like, wealth of knowledge for our listeners, and I'm sure for Justin and I as well, Um, so thank you very much. Another question I have is kind of revolved again around like in the classroom practices. So we have a lot of listeners um, who are interested in practices of what John Jennings and Stacey Robinson um, have referred to as critical making. And since you yourself are an artist and you've written and drawn cartoons as well as um, you're in painting, how do you see your art practice intersecting or interacting with your teaching and scholarship?
1: Well, it comes in 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 many different ways. So this class that I'm teaching right now, what I tell my, um, you know, my co-learners a lot, whether it's an undergraduate class. And this class I'm I'm mentioning is an undergraduate course. Um, But in my my graduate courses as well, I do see us as colleagues, undergraduate classes, graduate classes, and we are all co-learners. They're learning from me. I'm learning a lot from them. Um, you know, all the time. And I always tell them, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything that I would not do. So when I'm having them, you know, create their own comic, I give them examples of, okay, what does this look like? This is a comic that I made that was published and this is how it came about. These are the things I had to think about. Um, And then the problems I ran into. So like, for example, I have a comic that just came out in the magazine uh, Little Village in January for their arts issue. And I submitted one version to them and the art team was like, This is good, but we want you to go back and make these changes and that's challenging for an artist, you know, because we have our egos. I mean, I remember doing a mural with the mural artist, Lady Pink, and working collaboratively, which I had not done before, and someone sort of saying, okay, no, do this, change this, change that. So that was a learning curve for me. But anyway, the point is, I give them examples of what to do. So they're not just taking this deep dive into a, something that they're not familiar with without any type of, you um, you know jumping off place and an example to have and that's what I call that like you know like critical um, critical art making and so they have the opportunity to again see themselves as um, original creators and so other ways the art practice comes in sometimes when I am going to write about a topic I'm not sure just like every writer necessarily where to start or you have writer's block or the topic can be so intense and and circling back to the comic I was talking about that was published in Little Village, um, it, I started out wanting to write on uh, George Floyd, right? And, and his public execution. And so that was just loaded. I started out with a painting that I did and then the art team came back and said, oh, we want you to do something more comic-y. So it really ended up going in another direction. But that's just an example of something that you want to write or think about, and it's very complex. And when I'm going to write an article or a chapter, sometimes I start out with a painting just to kind of be able to think about it through a different um, form. And I do that a lot. Um, so if like for an example, um, after 9-11 happened, I um, I was I was living in Boston, 9-11 happened. So that that was a whole thing right there. And I was teaching at UMass Boston. But I ended up getting a grant to talk about Black patriotism and responses uh, to 9-11 in the Black public sphere. And And when I started that project, we ended up going to war. And again, I was in Boston and it was just so much. It was so heavy and I couldn't write. So I started doing a series of paintings as a way to get me to be able to sort of focus and work some things through. So that's kind of like how it it connects to the writing. And I do the same thing with poetry because I'm also a poet as well. So sometimes I'll write a poem about a particular topic before before I ended up writing an article. Um, or a chapter about something, or maybe what I'm doing will never end up becoming this different form, but maybe it's better for me to articulate this through a painting or a comic or a poem instead of an article. And I'm also a curator as well, so that's another way in which um, I bridge the worlds of scholar artists, and I, I curated a exhibition on um, hip-hop and um, that was in, in 2010. And so I also see myself as encouraging others to, to do this work. You don't have to be a one trick pony. You can do um, multiple things. But I don't just say, you know, go out and do all these things. I try to model how to do it effectively. And then just working with colleagues to think about the various ways in which they can um, receive credit and recognition. And I think this is especially important for whatever term you wanna use, historically marginalized groups, you know, BIPOC um, scholars or, or artists. A lot of times our work is undervalued or people don't think that they need to pay us. Or when we do this kind of public sphere, public uh, work, sometimes it's just thought of as service or you're gonna do this anyway, because this is who you are and it's just about your identity or whatever. And so I find like that happens a lot with my scholar artists Uh, Colleagues and just helping them think about, you know, how do you navigate that or I have, um, you know, colleagues who are hired to do work in the digital humanities or they're hired to do studio art. But then they also want you to write a book and write all these articles and then they don't want to give you credit for the art that you were you were hired because you do this work, so I mean I could talk forever about this it's really complicated. But the point is, again, thinking about how you model it, how you negotiate it, and saying it's not easy, it's hard, and you're going to have to make decisions about your your career. And you're, you'll you have to be, you, you have to be willing to know that it, it's not only is it not going to be always easy, but some of it's not going to count. And you have to sort of think about doing things for your own growth and uh, enrichment. And so um, it's, It's really a pleasure. I think the last thing I'll say is continuing to do my art, continuing to curate, uh, doing poetry and doing all these different things. I mean, I don't do it because I have a lot of time. What it really means is I'm just very taxed and busy and all these things, but it keeps it exciting. You know, I mean, I, you have folks who, you know, they have a particular topic, you know, maybe they write on Melville and everything they write on and teach on is gonna be about Melville and that's all they're gonna do. And I think that's great. But for me, all, all these things I do keep things exciting, keeps me um, engaged and just allows me to um, really feel like I'm contributing to several different spheres and I'm using different parts of my brain Uh, to to just to to think about things. And so I think creativity is really important for people to hone in themselves and to facilitate and encourage in
0: um, the classroom. Thank you. That was a a wonderful, tremendous answer. Uh, A follow-up question. You mentioned that you do some curating and some uh, exhibition stuff. And I also know that you that some of that work is is within the digital digital realm, the virtual spaces. And our podcast, a lot of the work that we do at Graphic Possibilities is really engaged in bringing in comics and visual arts into uh, digital spaces and using digital humanities to push at that in different ways, whether it's um, visualizing narratives or um, or creating you know exhibits. And so I was wondering if you could talk about and talk through some of your experiences connecting the two a lot of our listeners might not be quite as familiar uh, with that if you have any advice for getting started with um, digital humanities and and visual work writ large
1: absolutely so i'll talk about the the, the the physical exhibition and then talk maybe a bit about the use of the digital virtual so one of the things I did when I first got to Iowa in 2007 is to meet with the museum. And I had, you know, I came from, uh, previously I taught at St. Louis University and I worked a lot with the um, St. Louis Contemporary Museum, bringing in artists and doing work in arts education and integrating that into my classes. And so when I got to Iowa, I was really excited about um, continuing that. And I knew I wanted to do an exhibition and actually I wanted to do an exhibition on um, black patriotism, uh, kind of following my, uh, you know, my earlier grant and and work that I uh, did in that area. And then I was matched up with the amazing scholar, uh, artist as well, Kimber McLeod, who also wanted to do an exhibition so we got together and decided we would do an exhibition on hip hop that you know had all of these different topics and themes that we were interested in doing, and it was an incredible amount of work. Um, we ended up uh, having the flood. So the, just the museum physical space, we couldn't use anymore. So we had to find a space to have the exhibit and all of this. And so you know, we had art flyers, we had a music listening station. I did a mural with studio art students and Lady Pink that was the size of um, the Jackson Pollock mural. And that was done over three really intense days. And then we had a lot of photography. And so in terms of just getting started, it was just really you know um, meeting with the museum, putting myself out there, looking for collaborators and we started in 2007 and it didn't happen until 2010 so it took a lot of time the great thing about working in the virtual realm is that that kind of leg work and and time is compressed and so and i, I guess i should say when i when i first started doing this i have a virtual exhibition that i put together about my current book right now which is on um representations of disassociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder and a wide variety of forms like popular science and popular culture, uh, literature, novels, television, film, et cetera. And so I wanted to create an experience where people could interact with the idea of disassociation especially as it interfaces with women in the medical industrial complex uh, in ways that were accessible. And that's the great thing about exhibitions because the whole point is to think about how to present knowledge visually for the public. So this became that public facing um, project where anyone should be able to walk into this virtual space and know nothing about the topic or this you know the complexity of the specificity of, of the discourse around medical racism or, or um, you know uh, sexism in the medical field and all these different things but they're able to move through a space and experience um, visually and in an auditory like sonic way kind of what these main themes that I see as important for society to, to think about to just to, to interact with that. And so there was a struggle finding the right digital platform for this project. It, it took a while. I finally did, just by like doing research and doing consultations. And the other great thing about this is it allowed me to house a lot of the media I'm talking about in one, in one space. So it, it served other purposes as well beyond you know, something for the public. It's just a great space where I have a lot of the multimedia that I'm talking about in the book I'm working on right
0: now. Thank you. And, and out of, out of curiosity, you know, um, I often I I think, I think Julian tends to agree with me too. Um, I tend to look for like the simplest tool as being the best one a lot of the time, partially because um, there's so many powerful programs that take years to master, right? Um, What are some of the programs you've used to do some of that digital curation, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about it?
1: Sure, I absolutely agree with you. And the the other, one of the reasons why I take that same stance, uh, because as an interdisciplinary scholar, already you're having to master so many different methods. So if you're going to move into this area using uh, tools that are user-friendly, that allows you to get in there and do the work um, and not to slow you down, I think it's so important. And then the other thing is because I teach digital humanities classes, or I have folks um, I have my co-owners do DH projects. We don't have, you know, six months for them to learn a program. It has to be really user-friendly. You know, I have to walk them through doing the workshop myself. So it has to be really easy um, to use. And so I completely, um, you know, I completely agree with you. Some of the tools that I use, like for my virtual exhibition, I use Roomful. Um, there are more extensive virtual curating uh, software that you could use to do this. Um, But again, talking about accessibility, not only is Roomful really easy to use, it's free, at least for now. And and I'm saying like the other software to do this type of work, we're talking like over $1,000, right? Um, Some folks use SketchUp, which I'm a little familiar with, um, but I don't don't know it uh, very well at all. Some other digital tools I use. Um, I use ArcGIS to create maps. I have a map project I'm doing on um, the scholar Stuart Hall, the theorist Stuart Hall, but specifically like mapping out his um, the ways in which his theoretical work has been taken up by a variety of scholars across the world. So by doing that, I'm able to map his impact. Across universities, across geographical um, locations, and so that's something I'm working on right now. But I've also done a mapping project on um, Asian and Asian American women in disassociation, and I also use ArcGIS, um, but I also use ArcGIS Story Maps, and that's a really user-friendly, um, user-friendly tool uh, to do some sonic analysis. I've used a finale, which is quite complex, but I've also used Cortify, which is a lot easier to be able to map uh, voice and sound enunciation. And then it inputs out for you a kind of digital mapping of the different levels um, and amplifications of voice or instrumentation within a musical um, composition. And, uh, you know, I do digital films and digital videos. So I, I, I did a Uh, digital video using WeVideo, but I use iMovie a lot just because I'm a Mac person, Um, but WeVideo is really great too, and I've done a couple digital films, one on my um, book project that I'm working on right now on Disassociation, and then I also did a digital film using WeVideo about um, being a Black woman swimmer and using swimming as grief management. And I found that digital storytelling, teaching that in classes has been really successful. Um, and having um, my co-learners use digital storytelling, using WeVideo, um, sometimes I use iMovie to talk about their research or to talk about a particular, you know, taking a, a finer look at a particular moment or problem or subject. And so I think at least in terms of my pedagogy, doing uh, digital storytelling has been one of the um, favorite. Uh, assignments that my colonists really seem to respond to, so. Thank
2: you. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, wanting to talk a little bit about some upcoming projects that you've kind of mentioned specifically yesterday during our graduate webinar, you had mentioned, uh, that I believe you're working on a graphic novel adaptation or graphic novel adaptations of the dark tower series. Yes. Um, and I wanted to know just like more about that. And also, um, your choice behind why you chose uh, the Dark Towers series. <laughs> Sorry, and so those who are listening aren't seeing that I am
1: showing my um, my Stephen King graphic novels. I've got a little stack of them over here. <laughs> I just showed them on the screen. Uh, go ahead, Nicole. <laughs> I had to
2: yeah, no, I just wanted to know more about like why you chose them. I mean, that's part of the reason they already answered a little bit. Um, but why you've chose to do that graphic novel adaptation and kind of um, a little bit more insight into that process of readapting it into um, or like readapting the graphic novels.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm working on, you know, as you were saying, that. Um, graphic novel adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, but I'm particularly um, looking at a Black female character who um, has multiple personalities or um, disassociative identity um, disorder, as it's called. And, and so, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, media images of that topic as it relates to Black women. Um, most of the films and television shows and things like that focus on white women. Um, and so he has this wonderful character, um, uh, Susanna Dean, and it's written, you know, so well. And so I talk about the novel, but I also talk about the graphic novel. I mean, what does a graphic novel do that the novel is not able to do? So I'm talking a lot about Um, visuality and how the graphic novel is, um, uh, you know, representing space and time and language and how it's drawing and imagining the Black female body. And so that's really why I'm I'm looking at this particular title, because it fits into the topic of the book I'm writing on right now. But I guess I should say, I I published an article on Black women in disassociation, looking at the film Frankie and Alice. And so for the book, you know, one of the things they ask you to do is—is, is, I mean, you can publish as a book chapter, something you've written as an article, but editors uh, and presses also like you to change things. So, focusing on the Stephen King novel and graphic novel is a way to kind of add to what I've already written and make it anew for the um, for the monograph. Uh, it's it's an incredible uh, incredible series, and I mean, so part, in part to answer your question power series is really long. It's huge. And there's lots of different, um, you know, three-part segments of it. And even the one that I was looking at really specifically to talk about this character, the drawing of the three, I mean, I have a book at maybe, it's at least 400 pages. And I'm sorry if I'm not remembering exactly how many pages it is, but it's very long. The graphic novels are not as long and it's able to do the same incredible work. And in, in some ways, I think it's even doing more work than the novel, um, you know, than Stephen King's sort of sci-fi dash horror, horror novel um, series. And I also think the graphic novel did some really great work that the, the film um, wasn't able to do. And the film didn't have a character that I'm focusing on for my book. But um, so, yeah, so that, that's been a really great project. And it's a, it's a really wonderful uh, series. I, I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I, I actually don't, I can't believe that... Um... Uh, Nicole and I haven't talked about Stephen King yet before because uh, I'm a massive, massive Stephen King fan so mostly (laughs) I just want to read this uh, when when it's out and I'm terribly excited about it. I am also really curious in your in the work that you do in working with fandoms. how do you as a creator and scholar instructor find yourself engaging with those fandoms? You kind of talked a little bit about it also in our, in our graduate research workshop yesterday, but how do you find yourself engaging with those? Are there specific times that you um, make efforts to actively engage or to disengage, right? Like pointedly, I guess?
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great, great question. I could talk a lot about that. So for my chapter on Catwoman, one of the things I did is I talked to readers on the DC message board, which no longer exists, but it allowed me to talk to readers uh, across a wide geographical location and to ask some questions. And one of the really great things is I came into that that art, which was originally article with a lot of uh, preconceived notions. And it was only through actually talking to readers and fans that I learned so much more and my work took a completely different uh, focus so that was really exciting and so my interface with fan communities has been great I also for a while was part of a podcast called Black Comics Chat and I think I did at uh, released four different podcasts um, with uh, that group and that allowed me to interface with with readers you know because we're doing this uh, podcast but then in real time we have folks who are asking you know, questions. So the audience is a part of, it. the audience is an active part of the podcast, no matter who is on the panel. And there have been some times where I play the role of like curating the questions or um, you know, tweeting out the questions. And then sometimes I'm, I was actively on the panel and that did a lot of great work for my book. And you know, having folks know that my book was coming out and I have to say it is only because of fans and readers, both of what I theorized in my book as afro fans, but just readers and viewers of any you know racial ethnic composition and gender doing that podcast in direct interaction. That's why the book did so well because people knew about it like even a year before it came out. and it, people are buying it who are not just um, you know scholars or educators or you know, just people interested in comics have bought that book. And uh, it just would not, my book would not be anything without without those fans and those readers who really lifted me and my project up. And sometimes when you do this work in academia, it's not always valued. And so it really is through building community um, and interacting with readers and viewers and fans that helped sustain me, uh, you know, when things got dicey uh, with the project. And so I'm just really grateful. I've never felt like I had to, Step back or step away. Um, And, you know, I've done a little bit of sort of ethnography type of of things as well. I I guess I could say in terms of, uh, you know, readers, one thing that was difficult when my book came out You know, people who have read every issue of X Men (laughs) have a much wider knowledge than I do, and I heard from some of those (laughs) readers, and they emailed me, and they were like, "Well, you know, I see how you're saying this or that, but I don't see it this way." Or also, you you know, what there are things that are um, problematic about you wrote that you wrote because if you you know read issue this in like 1981, you would know that this or that is wrong. So I would say I got like three of those of you know people who were just very Uh, Devote uh, readers and I don't I mean that didn't upset me even though like I would say like one of them was kind of snarky and I didn't even respond back uh, with, you know, sort of calling the person on being, you know, somewhat snarky. I was really appreciative for their feedback for some of the corrections that I can put in the second edition. Uh, and and the next printing, and so I, you know, I appreciate that feedback, even if it wasn't always delivered in ways um, that were useful, and as a scholar, I mean, yes, I I have been someone who reads um, comics and graphic novels and a fan of films and and television shows and all that, but I haven't read every title of every book that I, or comic book and graphic novel that I write about. In some cases, I, I did really comprehensive uh, reading, but I couldn't do it for for all of that. So, um, always grateful to the to the fans and and to the readers, and I just thank them for lifting me up and um, helping me become a, a stronger uh, scholar and artist.
2: Thank you again for more of your like very insightful answers as it pertains to fans and fandom. We like to end our podcast with just giving you the spotlight and just seeing if you have any like upcoming work that you want to plug or talk about a little bit.
1: Thank you. So I have a book coming out in uh, June this summer called Keywords in Comic Studies with NYU Press. And I uh, co-edit that with Ramzi uh who uh, is amazing and wrote this great book called The New Mutants. Uh, and Shelly Strebe, who is an amazing scholar of environmental studies, Latinx studies, and comics. She's just incredible. And so it was amazing to work with these, you know, amazing scholars and and friends. And it was a lot of work because the Keywords volume takes up not just sort of vocabulary in general, but also trends in the field and common topics that people write about. And so we worked with so many different authors to, to write these pieces for the volume and um it's it's again it's been so much work but a labor of love and we just finished correcting the the page proofs and in looking at it comprehensively i'm really excited because i think it's really good i think it's going to be really useful to educators and researchers in the field so that's coming out i just published uh this past august a piece on afro goth comics and music in um, an anthology edited by um, for Frederick Luis Obama on um, uh, comics and black, uh, comics and uh, uh, race and sexuality, uh, a book that he did with Rutledge Press. And I, and I think that's pretty much it. You know, I do have some things coming down the pipeline and I already mentioned my book that I'm working on and I'm trying to finish up that talks about the dark tower. Um, but I also talk about films like uh, Sybil and Three Faces of Eve. And I talk about Korean uh, cinema and, and post-punk uh, Chinese um, musicians and Chinese American women who through performance art talk about disassociation. I'm looking at um, memoirs by Latinx uh, women. And I'm looking at a um, Mexican um uh, Mexican uh, television uh, show, Spanish language television show as well. So again, another project looking at various forms of media and um, I'll be really happy when it's done and it's out. And then I'm also working on a creative uh, book that is a mix of illustration, poetry and memoir. On uh, it's called Body Flow and it's on um, grief and resilience. And I, um, you know, I mentioned before that I did this digital short on Black women and swimming. And I'm thinking now about maybe doing a, and I also wrote an article about Black women and swimming too, I should say. And I know that can be a book. So that might end up being the
0: like the fifth project. We'll see. Wow. There are so many amazing things that you have coming out. Uh, I think that we are absolutely going to have to have you come back, um, especially yeah. because so much of that work intersects with all of our things, but also just because you're doing such rad, important work, and um, yeah. it's all very exciting stuff. So thank you for being generous with us and for being generous with your time. We really appreciate you being here. Pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. For you. Thank you.